Welcome to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. Across southern Arizona, it's the time of year when the temperatures are heating up and the land is drying out, and that means the danger of wildfires is increasing. Though we've had a good winter, based on the fuel loading, if we get some drier, hotter conditions, um, we could potentially see some large fires on these, in those mid to lower elevations. This week, we take a look at wildfires in southern Arizona, what's being done to prevent them, and how nature recovers. The Coronado National Forest includes 16 different mountain ranges, often called Sky Islands, and covers close to 2 million acres. It includes familiar places like Mount Lemmon and the Huachuca Mountains. Much of the area received plenty of rain and snow this winter, and while that was great for people who wanted to ski or see an amazing wildflower bloom this spring, Steve Miranda, the fire management officer with the forest, says it's also a concern for his office. The wet winter was one part of, of this puzzle, but, uh, you know, we look back a couple of years, you know, 2021, the monsoons of 2021, last year's monsoons, the accumulation of fuels over the, the past two years is, is really kind of uh, amplified that fine fuel growth and, and has kind of created more of a, a worsening fire situation for us, uh, you know, on the fuel side of the house. Uh, so uh, it's so it's just it's just been exponentially increasing through the last couple of years. When you say a worse fuel situation for those of us who go up Mount Lemmon if we're in Tucson or into other parts of the Coronado, which are further south and east, what does a good or a bad fuel situation look like? Well, um, really, it's just a lot of grasses. We call those fine fuels. So we just have a, a really large amount of, of grass loading and it just keeps compounding on, on top of itself. Um, we've managed to do really well over the last couple of years to, uh, to stop those wildfires that were human starts. Uh, you know, we, we were, you know, we've been really aggressive uh, with our strategies and tactics, uh, but on the flip side, so that, that fuel just continues to accumulate uh, without it burning. That's what carries the fire. Uh, so the grass fuels are your primary carrier, and then, uh, then it transitions into what we call the crowns, which it could be the, the brush or the trees. When we're talking about management of those fuels, we've seen, at least those of us who live in Tucson not that long ago, there were some prescribed burns up near Mount Lemon and, and places like that. How much of that does Coronado do, and are you able to do as much as you want to do? In recent years, we've been averaging about 20,000 acres of treatment a year, and you really kind of strategically placing those in locations that would give us the maximum benefit. Is it where we would like to be? No. I mean, we obviously want to accelerate our restoration on the landscapes as well as making more, more fire resilient landscapes uh, here in Southern Arizona. Uh, so we're working to get there. We've changed our workforce in a way uh, where it's not wholly suppression or, or totally suppression focused or and park fuels, we've really emphasized the part about managing fuels here on the Coronado National Forest. We have personnel that specialize specifically in fuels management. That is their, their job, you know, day in and day out, and that's their focus. We have crews that are they're specifically focused in on doing fuels management work and not suppression. So we've, we're trying to really expand that so that we can really get to the capacity or the, the uh, amount of treatment 
that we need to be at, you know, and it's just not Southern Arizona. It's not just Arizona. It's the West in general. You know, we in the, in the Western United States really need to accelerate the, the amount of work we're doing because we are currently in, in a wildland fire crisis. Yes, we have a good year, uh, you know, across the West with a lot of reservoirs getting refilled that were, that were impacted through drought, but we don't expect that to sustain, you know, where it's drought. This is kind of an anomaly to have an average year, what used to be considered an average year. We just expect drought conditions on a regular basis because things have changed. You know, when you talk about drought, I think most people think about dryness, which has its own fuel issues. But you also mentioned reservoirs, which come in handy when it comes to fighting a big wildland fire. Talk about that a little bit, if you can, because that may be a part people don't think about very often. You know, water is an important part of fighting a fire. You know, when we're within drought years, a lot of our normal places where we would get water for our helicopters, where they would dip out of to be able to attack the fire, that had dwindled in the past, you know, decade. And so, you know, with a year like this in the last couple of years that we've had, you know, we're getting those built back up where we're getting that water where we can, you know, have what we call a quick turnaround from the helicopter dropping water and then returning, uh, returning back, filling the bucket back up and then returning back to the fire. You know, and we also are looking at uh, other ways of helping that by putting, looking at investing in some uh, portable hell wells, you know, water tanks that we can move uh, on trailers when an incident breaks. I don't know if you have a smoky crystal ball or not, but what does the rest of this year look like for wildfires, wildland fires in the Coronado? It's a tricky one um, to say because we have the fuel loading, but we've had moderated temperatures and then the increased moisture uh, over the winter. So we have high soil moisture content uh, across the Coronado, uh, which will help kind of uh, moderate conditions. I would say that in the higher elevations, it's going to be a delayed onset for fire season. So in the mountaintops, it's a little bit cooler. You know, they hold the storms much better and they held them over the winter much better. So there, there's a lot more moisture in the fuels, which makes it difficult to for the fire to burn or consume those fuels. In the lower elevations, that's different because they are all fine fuels and it, it doesn't take long for once the, the grass cures, we refer to them as one hour fuels. So basically the condition of that grass can change over one hour to the next. So it's really dependent on what those atmospheric conditions are, your temperatures, your relative humidities, your wind. So though we've had a good winter, based on the fuel loading, if we get some drier, hotter conditions, we could potentially see some large fires on these in those mid to lower elevations. Those of us who spend time in the Coronado or anywhere in the wilderness in Southern Arizona, we should know the rules about campfires so that we don't accidentally start some kind of wildland fire. But what are other things those of us who are out and about can do to try and prevent wildland fires? What we do ask is that people be very careful. You know, they, they enjoy your camping uh, experience. Uh, and a, an important part of that experience is having a, a campfire. But when you're done, uh, make sure you drown that fire completely. Uh, you know, you want to fill those ashes, make sure there's no heat left in them mix them up with a shovel. How about things like if you're just driving, I understand if you've got a trailer and the chain is dragging, that even that little spark when it gets really dry before the monsoon gets here can really cause problems. Yeah, you know, driving, pulling off on the side of the road with tall grass, dragging your chains. We've had some interesting scenarios here in Southern Arizona. You know, 
folks have at times put hot coals into the trash. It's not, it's not burning at that moment, but driving down the road, the truck basically becomes consumed with fire because the trash catches fire. And we've had multiple starts along roadways uh, because of situations like that. So just really being thoughtful and understanding that you've got to be careful with every situation when it comes to fires. This weekend, I saw the National Weather Service in Tucson is talking about fire weather at the end of the week and into the weekend. As you said, there aren't a lot of fire restrictions right now, but we're talking about fire weather. So what do people need to know from your standpoint about fire weather? Because it's not ridiculously hot yet, so there'll still be a lot of people out and about. Really important to, to heed those warnings when we're having red flag warnings or fire weather watches. Those are kind of those day-to-day short-term weather events that could create pretty bad fire conditions for us. But you're going to have high winds. You're going to have low relative humidities. Uh, and that's a combination with drier fuels. That's a combination that can create a real problem for us and for people that live in southern Arizona. Looking back at 2023, the four months we've had, how have we been doing with wildland fires in the Coronado? I would say in my tenure here, which has not been long, it's been six years. So I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go from that that historical perspective, we, we're doing rather well. We're, we're, we're not having the frequency and we're not having the as intense fire behavior because we've had these moderated temperatures, average temperatures. Again, you know, we consider that moderated now, but you know, these average temperatures have really been helping us out. We have had some problem fires and, it, and it, going back to your previous question on red flag warnings, uh, it was on those red flag days where we've had problem fires. That was Steve Miranda, the fire management officer with the Coronado National Forest. When it comes to fighting fires, there are a number of different tools. Included in that arsenal are the VLATs, or very large air tankers, which can drop thousands of gallons of fire retardant at a time. New Mexico-based 10-tanker air carrier uses DC-10 jetliners. We talked with John Gould, the president of 10 Tanker, two years ago after they fought the Bighorn Fire. Absolutely a new concept, I think, in terms of large air tankers. How much we would carry is so much more than anybody else, anybody conceived of at the time. So it's been a long road to get acceptance in the community for something that is so different than what they've seen before. And, uh, but I think we finally have. You know, I think the, certainly the firefighters on the ground are happy when they see a DC-10 roll overhead. They know they can get a lot of work out of it. And the reality, Chris, is that economies of scale make a difference, whether you're hauling stuff in a truck uh, across country or, or you're hauling retardant to a fire. A fire needs retardant. Those firefighters on the ground need some help. And I think that the more help you can bring them, the cheaper it can be and the more effective it can be. What are the advantages of using big planes? DC-10s are big planes instead of the smaller tankers that a lot of people, including it sounds like fire managers and firefighters, are used to seeing. Again, the advantages are economies of scale. If you're a firefighter and you're on the ground with uh, you know, a 10-acre fire and it's noon or 1 o'clock in the afternoon, you know you've got the burning period in front of you, you want that thing out as fast as possible because you, know, you can't afford to can't afford to have that thing going strong at four o'clock, five o'clock in the afternoon. We bring enough retardant to the party to help those guys get up the line, you know, secure the tail, get around the fire, 
and uh, hopefully keep that from getting a big head going. And so there's a lot of tools in the toolbox available for them. So, uh, but I think that we can help guys um, get around the fire more quickly and keep those small fires from becoming giant fires that are the ones that we see in the news every day. And that's the advantage. It's economy scale. And I think that one of the other advantages we have are some really great tanks. There are good lines and bad lines that come out of those airplanes. And uh, we, we drop a really nice, effective line that can, depending on the coverage level we have, we can get a mile of line in if it's grass fire. I'm sure some, you know, will look at a DC-10 big and say, oh, that, that can't be a precision aircraft. It's too big to be precision and get into canyons. We saw you guys in canyons here in Tucson, so obviously... Precision is not a problem for a three-engine jet tanker. One of the misconceptions is that we don't have an airplane that, that can fly in anything but flat, open country where we can see what's coming. And, and actually, the opposite is true. Um, you know, when, when McDonnell Douglas built this airplane, they built, number one, a really stout airplane. It's a great airplane for the job that it's doing. We have three engines, each of them producing over 50,000 pounds of thrust. We take off, you know, with 400,000 pounds in an airplane that it was built, designed to take off with 575,000 pounds of stuff in it. When we get to the fire, we're light. The airplane feels really light. It's very maneuverable. And with uh, the full flaps and slats, we can set up runs that go down a very steep hill, keep our speed down low enough to have an effective drop, and then have all the power we need to get back out of it. And the visibility out of the cockpit's just great. So we actually have a, an advantage. We, we are very accurate and we do a good job. We're talking with John Gould, the president of 10 Tanker. DC-10s are big planes. Uh, they, they take a lot of fuel. 9,400 gallons of retardant takes time to pump in. I know it doesn't take much time to get it out. So what is the turnaround time if you're on a fire from the time the plane drops to the time... 10 tanker can be back. At the air tanker bases, they got real pros working there. Whether it's a BAE 146, a 3,000 gallon airplane, or a DC 10, they get all of us in and out pretty quickly. So for us, they'll get the tanks filled in less than 15 minutes with retardant. They get it in there pretty fast. So it's usually, you know, a 25 minute turnaround if we have to get fuel. As long as the air tanker base is ready to accept us when we get in and Usually they are. It's not like it takes us an hour and a half to get ready to go out and do one more mission. We've had days where we've had eight, nine missions that we've accomplished in a day if it's a short turnaround. Right now you have, I understand, on-call planes and then some tankers that are under contract. We have exclusive use contracts with the U.S. Forest Service. And then we have planes that they have on what they call call-when-needed contracts. So with those call when needed contracts, they'll pick us up when they need us, which usually means later in the summer when the fires really get going. We also have the same type of contract with CAL FIRE. California's got a lot of, a lot of fire issues. So whenever it gets going, we usually find our airplanes down there. So they'll work every summer. When it comes to the economies of scale you mentioned, obviously the DC-10 is a big plane. It takes more fuel. It, it takes more people to fly. You, know, you have a three-person flight crew plus ground crews and, and all of that. Does that drive up the cost at all, or is that equalized by how much you can drop in a single run? 
to get an airplane that big, it's expensive to operate. It costs us a lot to fly, but that's not what uh, the firefighters on the ground or the fire managers are worried about. I mean, they're concerned about costs, but what we do is, you know, we make it up when we, when we bring a lot to the fire. So we know based on what we see with results or with force service tells us we can drop a retardant at half the cost of any other airplane out there. We're expensive to get the airplane there. It burns a lot of fuel, as you say, uh, but it gets a lot of work done. I think that we're a good bargain for the firefighters that are working and for the people who are counting on the Forest Service or uh, whatever protection agency it is to protect their homes or their, their land. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Happy to do it. That was John Gould with Ten Tanker Air Carrier. You're listening to The Buzz. After the break, we learn about how nature recovers after a big fire. Stay with us. Welcome back to The Buzz. I'm Christopher Conover. This week, we're talking about wildfires. Fire may seem destructive, but that's not always the case. Dr. Molly Hunter is a fire ecologist at the University of Arizona. We began our conversation about the effects of fire with an important question. What is a fire ecologist? Fire ecologist um, tries to understand what the role of fire is in ecosystems. The nuances of that, of how different ecosystems respond to fire and how fire behaves in different ecosystems is really quite variable. And there's interesting interactions with climate and um, humans. And so it's really trying to figure out, given that, given that we know fire plays a natural role, but it can also be harmful to people and harmful to ecosystems under certain circumstances, how should we manage it? You know, what's the role that uh, managers should play in lighting fire or suppressing fire or whatever that that action might be? How can we best make those decisions informed by what we know ecosystems need? To help people understand a little bit about, especially southern Arizona, we get fires in the mountains, we get fires lower down, those are two very different ecosystems. 
I'm from the East Coast originally, and I always heard, oh, pine forest needs fire, and you go up Mount Lemmon, and there's plenty of pine up there. But how do those eco, those two different eco, predominant ecosystems play with fire here? Yeah, you're right in that in the pine forest uh, typically is where, at least in southern Arizona, we would have seen most of our fire historically, and that's where we think of it as kind of belonging naturally. You know, also in our grasslands, I mean, there's pl- plenty of you know, what we call fuel, it's biomass or grass. I mean, that's a, a perfect carrier of fire. And so anytime you sort of see that continuous grass cover, that's a good indication that fire plays a natural role in that system. But in deserts, uh, we consider them typically fuel limited. You know, there's not a lot of biomass there that could really carry fire. Uh, so historically, we think of those systems as not really being adapted to fire. And when we see fire in those systems, that's not something that that uh, that we like, you know, because the native plants aren't really well adapted to it. You mentioned climate earlier as a factor in all of this. Has climate change changed the way different ecosystems not only react to fire but recover from fire? Yeah, absolutely. You know, sometimes we get fires that are a little bit outside of the range of what we would consider natural. Maybe they're too hot. Sometimes that's a result partly of climate change. It's also a result of just fuel buildup over long periods of time. There's lots of things that can kind of cause that. But also, you know, how those ecosystems recover after fire, climate can play a big role in that as well. Thinking about pine forests, maybe something we would like to see is after a fire, some, you know, regeneration of pine seedlings. But that kind of activity is really dependent on just the right climatic conditions. And so certainly if it's too hot, it's too dry, and those conditions persist for a long period of time, then we may not see that kind of recovery. Is that what we're seeing now, or is it too early to tell? Because climate, of course, is measured over a very long period of time. It is, and it's, I would say, in some respects, that's what we predict, right, based on models and things like that. But we would like to be able to back up those models with evidence and and kind of tracking how, for example, pine regeneration occurs after some of these big fire events. You know, some things that we know is that regeneration is really, really, really slow if, if it occurs at all, particularly in really, really big areas that have burned with high intensity. They're just so big that the pine seedlings, seeds can't get into the center of them to establish. So those are some things that we know that, that those areas, we don't know that they're going to successfully recover without some kind of planting or something like that. Before we started recording, you and I were talking very briefly about the Bighorn Fire. For those of us who are untrained, that looked like a big, intense fire. But how do you classify an intense fire versus a less intense fire like you were just talking about? Part of it is, you know, when the fire is burning, how hot are the flames? You know, that's but that's that's one measure that we use, but that's a hard measurement to get. <laughs> so typically what we'll do is we'll look at satellite imagery before and after the fire. Um, and that gives you an indication of how many trees died, you know, and how, how big are the patches of of tree death. So that's a measure of fire severity. It's a really important measure that we we look to again and again to see, okay, how how out of whack was this fire in terms of what we would expect for that ecosystem. And the bighorn, I, yeah, there were some areas that burned hot and resulted in some mortality, but by and large, it, it, it was a fire that produced really good effects ecologically. You talked about using satellites, and I would imagine technology as it advances 
plays a bigger and bigger role in what you do. How are you using technology maybe in ways that will surprise people? Satellites are used for all kinds of reasons, but even on fire incidents, you know, the incident management teams are increasingly using a lot of new technology. Drones are really important for gathering intelligence during a fire. And some of that technology is also being used in measurements after a fire. So you can, from satellite imagery, you can get a big picture view, but you can't really pick out tree, you know, individual trees. And by using things like drones, you can get a little bit more finer detail without having to get to a remote place and measure every tree, which can be really difficult, time-consuming, and expensive. When you're doing your work looking at a fire and seeing what happened and how long restoration will take, natural restoration, I'm guessing this is not something like the Bighorn Fire. Okay, the fire's contained, it's out, we'll go up spend a couple of days, and we're finished. I'm guessing this is a long term. How long do you study a fire? Is it years, or is it something sometimes even maybe you go back years later and pick the data back up? A lot of that depends on on the time frames over which fire occurred in a lot of systems. So in our you know pine forest down here in southern Arizona, historically fires would have occurred every you know, three, five, seven years. And so that's kind of the time frame that you have to return to, to kind of understand what the effects are and if they're different than what you would have expected historically. But if you think about some systems like the Northern Rockies or Alaska, fires occurred on the order of every 200, 300 years. And so you really have to take a long view to, to uh, in your studies to understand kind of what the implications of of current fires are. And that's where there's a lot more uncertainty because obviously we just don't live that long and we don't have data sets that go back that far. And it's just, we have to be really creative about how we kind of study those systems. It sounds like, as with a lot of science, you can't go in depending on where you're looking with the assumptions, what I learned in Southern Arizona is applicable in the Northern Rockies or on the East Coast or in the central part of the country. Absolutely. And even in, in southern Arizona, I mean, there's, you know, what we find in the Pinolinos is different than what we find in the Santa Catalina Mountains. I mean, so we really have to kind of take that that sort of nuanced view of fire. And that's, you know, one of the roles of a fire ecologist, really. Not to get too complicated, mm-hmm. but what are the differences, for example, between those two mountain ranges when it comes to fire and results? Yeah, well, the uh, the Pinolinos are higher, so there's there's more spruce fir up there, and so that that has a different fire regime. Um, and sometimes even topography can play a, a role. So you know, mountain ranges that are really um, have a lot more rocky outcrops and are really steep. You know, you wouldn't have seen many as many ignitions historically as you would on mountain ranges that where the fuels are more continuous. Do you see any effect of a fire based on what caused the fire versus, for example, a lightning started fire versus uh, someone not tending a campfire or something like that? Do those fires have a long-term different effect or once they get going, they're all the same? Well, they could in that, you know, um, our lightning fires occur in a real characteristic season. You know, typically they, they happen during the monsoon. Um, and that means, you know, during that time, the relative humidity could be higher. That could be accompanied with some patchy rain. And and also it's during a time when the plants are, well, they're actively growing. I mean, they're, they're, they're at a, a certain point in their life cycle that's going to influence how they react with fire. 
uh, human-caused ignitions happen year-round. The range of, over the in terms of weather in which they experience and the range in terms of what the plant's stage of growth is in is, is different. And so, yeah, the effects can be different um, depending on, on the timing of the fire and how that interacts with the weather and how the fire is going to behave and also the stage that the plants are in. All right. Well, thanks for spending some time with us. Yeah, my pleasure. That was Dr. Molly Hunter, a fire ecologist at the University of Arizona. And that's the buzz for this week. You can find all our episodes online at azpm.org and subscribe to our show wherever you get your podcasts. Just search for The Buzz Arizona. We're also on the NPR One app. Zach Ziegler is our producer, but this week we let Samantha Larned take the helm. Jim Blackwood is our production engineer, and our music is by Enter the Haggis. I'm Christopher Conover. Thanks for listening. Arizona Public Media's original programming is made possible in part by the Community Service Grant from the Corporation for Public Broadcasting.